As you're taking your seats, go ahead and uh, grab your Bibles and open up to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. Well, I want to talk to you this morning about bodybuilding. <laughs> I mean that in the, the, the sense, um, literally, physically, bodybuilding, but I also mean that in the sense, spiritually, uh, bodybuilding. You see, God is at work in building His body, and we've seen that in the book of Ephesians as we've launched into chapter 4. God has actually given us a church growth, or the church growth, rather, I should say, formula. The way to see the body continue to grow, we saw last week, is to take Holy Spirit unity, and as we'll see this week, Holy Spirit diversity. When you add those two things together, what you get is Holy Spirit maturity, you get a strengthened body, a strong, healthy body. And I wonder, I, I, I love sports. I pay attention to a lot of sports. And some of you may not even consider bodybuilding to be a sport. But, but if, if you can humor me for a moment, bodybuilding is such a fascinating sport. You know, the pride of it aside, like a lot of athletics, the pride of it aside and the, the, the focus on the body, it is a fascinating thing just to consider what's taking place in the mind of a bodybuilder. The whole intention of a bodybuilder is to go into the gym and to look at their body and determine the right way to attack each individual muscle group so that the entire body is filled out and symmetrical and looks as perfect as it could possibly look. And to be an effective bodybuilder, to, to be an award-winning bodybuilder, I mean, you have to pay attention to muscles that you have never even heard of. Muscles that you would seem or believe to be uh, really trivial, minute, unimportant, and yet a bodybuilder doesn't just focus on the things that we love to consider when we go to the gym, like the, the biceps or the, the chest or the back. They look at every tiny muscle and they want to make sure that it fits in its proper place. Paul, the apostle, loves the metaphor of the body when he talks about the church. He calls the church over and over again the body of Christ, reminding us in certain places like 1 Corinthians 12 and even here this morning that we are all individually members of one body. We are unified together as a whole, and yet within that unity, there is great diversity, and each member plays a specific part. All of us united in the church under the head, Jesus Christ, He is our authority. He is the source of our strength, as we have just sung about and prayed about He is the one who leads us and guides us and gives us everything we need. He calls us all into this body, and He calls us all with a purpose, and we all receive our purpose and our power from Him, working together to serve the well-being of the entire body, and a body that works together in a healthy way, like a bodybuilder, with each muscle finely tuned. Listen, it displays incredible beauty. Listen, but as with a bodybuilder, it, is, it displays incredible power. And that is behind the heart of Paul in the book of Ephesians. He is longing desperately to highlight and to demonstrate the great, awesome, mighty, unmatched power of God through the church of Jesus Christ. This is the place, the church, 
where God has determined to put his unmatched power on full display to all of the world and all of the universe. And our diversity of spiritual gifts, the way that God has gifted each of us with abilities and passions and desires. Listen, we are functioning with unity of purpose together, producing something. We, we, we understand that this is heading towards this idea of a mature body, a strong and healthy body. But God's Word also, when it comes to our spiritual gifts, listen, it makes it very clear that our spiritual gifts are declaring something so mighty, so powerful. And when we understand this, I, I believe with all my heart that it will change how we serve Jesus and how we serve one another. Paul writes, following this great section of unity that we saw last week, picking up in verse 8, look at it with me, verse 7, excuse me, and he moves from the oneness that we have in Christ, and he says this in verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? And he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ." Verse 7 reminds us here that Paul is moving again from that unity, that beautiful unity that we experience together into our diversity. He moves from the oneness and then he focuses on how each one, as he says in verse 7, has experienced a gift from God. As we look at this text together, I want you to first see this, that we have a diversity of gifts declaring our enemy's defeat. There are multi-levels or layers of purposes for which God gave us our spiritual gifts. And as we'll see next week, it is for the maturing of the body, for the building up of one another. But this week, I want you to see the statement, the theological statements that are being made through the use of our gifts and through a healthy church family functioning together. Now, I don't say this lightly, but... Um, this sermon this morning is going to be very different maybe than a, a normal sermon. You know, oftentimes you'll, I'm, I'm very, you know, I do a lot of preaching. I'm very preachy in my preaching. Makes a lot of sense. This morning it's going to be a little bit more teachy than it is preachy, if I can say it like that. Um, and I don't want that to scare any of you. In fact, I, I really believe if you can track through this this morning, I really believe that it will take you to a place in your own heart that perhaps you've never been before when it comes to serving Jesus. Paul looks at our diversity, verse 7 there, and notice how he says that grace was given to each of us. It's not just that God saved us by his grace, although that is absolutely true, and that is first and foremost. It is by grace we have been saved. Paul has explained that in chapter 2 very clearly. It's not of, our, of ourselves. It's not our own works, our own merits that save us. It is a gift of God's grace. But as God saves us and calls us into this new family, into his body, one of the things we see with such clarity here is that in his grace, he actually gifts you. He paints you with abilities and spiritually endowed, powerful gifts that are intended to be used 
with a unified purpose of bringing glory to His name. Paul describes these gifts in other places, and it is not our purpose this morning to get into all the gifts, so just kind of remove that piece from your mind, get it out of there. We're not going to get into all of the spiritual gifts. The Bible gives us multiple locations to look at what I believe are not exhaustive lists of our spiritual gifts, but are certainly demonstrations of spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, Romans chapter 12. But I want to just really quickly, and you don't have to turn, just listen to the Word of God. Listen to how Paul begins his discussion on spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12. Here's what he says. He says, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. That's essentially what he's just said to the church in Ephesus. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. You see the, the unity, but the diversity. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. He says, to each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And then later down in verse 11, he says this, all these, after he describes some of the spiritual gifts, are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. The Spirit of God, God the Father, God the Son, they call you into the family of God and they paint you with specific gifts and abilities and call you then to work towards certain activities all with a common purpose. This is the way that Paul is wanting to remind the church that they are to grow with the diversity of giftedness that God has given, the measure of Christ's gift. And that's why he moves now into a more of a theological statement. He says, therefore, notice, based on what God has done in gifting you all individually, notice how he makes this link. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Paul draws a link all the way back to the Old Testament. He's drawing a link as you're the Bibles may indicate for you back to Psalm 68. And Psalm 68, listen, it's an incredible psalm. I really believe it's one of the most powerful psalms in all of the scriptures. It's a psalm that describes God's victory and defeat of the enemies of Israel. It's a psalm that describes how God, the God Almighty, the God of Israel, Yahweh, he reigns over them and how he gives strength and power to his people to walk in the victory that he had won. And in Psalm 68, at its kind of climax, you might argue, in verse 18, you have God ascending the mountain, the mountain of Zion, Jerusalem, and it says there that he's leading a host of captives. In ancient cultures, when a king would go on a military campaign and had defeated the rival kings, he would come back into the city and have this victory procession. Even Psalm 68 paints this beautiful picture of this victory procession of the king marching back to the, the, the city of David, to the throne of David. And as he marches, there's celebration, there's dancing, there's cheering. But one of the things you need to know in the ancient culture is that as the king paraded back in, in this victory procession, there would be, yes, celebrating and yes, rejoicing 
The king had won and he had returned victorious, but at the very end of the procession, in the train of the victory procession, there were the defeated kings, the rival nations, the supposed powers that would come up against the nation of Israel. Here they are being dragged along, watching with their eyes the victory procession of the king. Marching behind the king who had defeated them in humiliation, in shame, in total and utter embarrassment. And Paul takes this imagery in Psalm 68 and he applies this imagery to what God has accomplished in Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to turn in your Bible, keep a finger in Ephesians and, and flip back to Psalm 68. It's, if, if we don't understand the backdrop of Psalm 68, we will not understand what Paul is driving at. So turn to Psalm 68, probably almost right in the middle of your Bible. And we need to turn here because some of you have already picked up on this. There's a slight discrepancy between what Paul says in Ephesians 4 verse, verse 8 and what David writes in Psalm 68, verse 18, you'll notice, let me just remind you what Paul says. It says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, Psalm 68, verse 18, look what it says. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men. You catch the discrepancy? Here, David says that the king was receiving gifts and David says that here the king is giving the gifts. It's important to see this, and we need to kind of process this, because we need to understand here what is happening so we don't believe that maybe Paul is misquoting Scripture or that somehow he is altering the text. That's not at all what he's doing, and, and the vast majority of scholars completely agree on this, by the way. What we need to see Paul doing is essentially giving a Holy Spirit-inspired summary of the entire psalm, Okay? He's not intending to give us a direct quote. He is alluding to this psalm, but now he's giving us, especially in the second portion of what Paul says, a Holy Spirit-inspired summation of what this psalm ultimately is all about and what it's trying to communicate and what the nation of Israel would have understood it to mean. Clinton Arnold, a scholar and commentator, says this. He says, we need to see that Paul was probably seeking to bring out the full meaning of the text by not simply citing it verbatim, but by explaining the sense of it. He says that this psalm is displaying the ongoing defeat of God's enemies on behalf of his people. And throughout this psalm, what we see is that the spoils of war, as was common in the ancient Near East culture, were always shared with the people, right? A conquering king would never hoard all the spoils to himself. You know, when they, when they conquered the rivals and they looted them and they took all of the wealth from the city, they never just stacked it up in their own storehouse. They always came back and shared it, shared the victory with the people. And here, it's, it's a fast, we, we don't have time to go through this entire psalm, and I would encourage you, this afternoon even, to just pause before the Lord and read through this psalm and, and soak in it, because what's happening here is really an incredible summation of the nation of Israel's history, and in one sense, the history of God's redeeming plan for the world. 
It's not speaking of one simple moment in time. It's speaking of a victory march that God has been taking his people on that he began at a certain point in history, but that will conclude at a still yet future point in history. And along the way, God is demonstrating over and over and over in the history of God's people. Just reading through the Old Testament, this this highlights so much of this history of how God conquered the enemies of Israel. God ruled over all the enemies. And this march and this passage in chapter 68, it begins, listen, after God had saved his people, the story kind of picks up after the exodus, and we see the people gathered at Mount Sinai. That's the place where God gave them the law. He had saved them and delivered them from bondage to sin and the slavery that they were in. And then he meets with them, and he talks to them, and he gives them his word to live by and to follow. And as they do, God continually shows them his power at work on their behalf. And the ending point, as we already mentioned, is Zion. Jerusalem. And all of this is supposed to encapsulate for us the history of God at work in Israel. Look at verse 12, as we see God telling his people how he shares the spoils of victory with them, just a few indications, the kings of of the armies, they flee, they flee, the women at home, listen to this, divide the spoil. More importantly, he shares the salvation that they experience, that he has won on their behalf. Verse 20, our God is a God of salvation, and to God the Lord belong deliverances from death. Verse 26, bless God in the great congregation, O Lord, the Lord, sorry, O you who are of Israel's fountain. Listen, the imagery is of a God, a king, a conquering king who lavishes out of the wealth of his own fountain and continues to pour out blessing upon blessing and gift upon gift onto his people. The emphasis here is the generosity of the king. But at the very heart of this psalm, listen, it is a prayer that God would defeat his enemies. That is Paul's point, by the way, when it when he's, uh, excuse me, in, in Ephesians chapter 4, this is a prayer already in chapter 3 that God would defeat the enemies. This whole portion of God's word in Ephesians is laced with this idea of victory over the enemy. That Paul prayed, right, that we would grasp the unimaginably great power of God who strengthens his people to stand against their enemies. This is the story of Psalm 68. One commentator said it like this, it's a prayer that the divine warrior will manifest his power, strengthen his people, and defeat the enemies of Israel. I mean, just just look at verse 1, and you get this indication already right out the gates. God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. We can read through this psalm and be reminded of how God has worked to defeat the physical enemies of Israel. And and the scriptures are full of this accounting of, of God fighting on behalf of his people, of showing 
his strength amidst their weakness. I mean, that's why God constantly was doing things that, that would show his power, right? Go and march around the city seven times and blow a trumpet. You have way too many men, okay? So I want you to pare down your army. I want to whittle this down until a group of 300 going against thousands. Why? Why, why, why? Over and over again, why? Because God wanted his people to know that the power was not in them, it was in him. And this is Paul's point that he's driving home to us. But you need to see as well, as as much as this is talking about the physical enemies that Israel faced, really what the psalmist David was hitting at harder and what Paul is hitting at in Ephesians chapter 4 and all throughout the book of Ephesians is that we need to be reminded of how God has been at work not just to defeat our physical enemies, but of how God has been at work to defeat our greatest enemy and the spiritual forces that are at work against us. This psalm repeatedly alludes to the defeat of God's and Israel's spiritual enemies, the enemies, listen, that stood behind these earthly rulers, the spiritual enemies that fueled the fire of hatred against the God of Israel. The spiritual enemies that fueled the idolatry and worship of other gods in all of the other nations. That is what this psalm is hitting at below the surface. And this is so vital to see because this has been Paul's concern in the book of Ephesians. If you've been with us through the book of Ephesians, you see that this is a a letter that is highly saturated in spiritual warfare. We haven't even got to chapter 6 yet, but already Paul has been laying out the cosmic battle that's being fought In the heavenly places, the rulers, the principalities, the powers that are at work right now, even though we cannot see them. It's so interesting when you you just consider reading our Bible. We read through it, we read the Bible, excuse me, through our Western, you know, enlightenment influenced mindset, and we often miss the supernatural elements of the scriptures, but you need to understand that the the ancient writer and the ancient reader paid very close attention to the supernatural world. I mean, just remember what Paul wrote in in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10 here. He said, this is what he's doing. This is what he's, this matters for the church because Paul has already said this, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, right? God is using the church like a megaphone to the supernatural realm. And in Ephesians 6, verse 12 He says this, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Do you see how saturated this book is and the the, the biblical author's minds are in the spiritual realities? Ephesus, the city that Paul is sending this letter to, remember in Acts, what we saw in chapter 19 and chapter 20, 
Ephesians, excuse me, the Ephesian church and the city of Ephesus is steeped in the occult. They are a city that is ruled by pagan influences and, listen, supernatural authorities and powers. They have a shrine and a massive temple to Artemis, the goddess of the Ephesians. It was there that we saw the seven sons of Sceva come up and try to cast demons, or sorry, a man tried to cast demons out of the, these demons out of another man, and, and they looked at him and said, we've heard of Jesus, and we know who Paul is, but who are you? And they beat the man into a pulp, leaving him fleeing naked. It was this city in Ephesus where the, the, the believers, the Christians in this church, they brought all of their books of magic and sorcery, demonically inspired and influenced occultic activity, and they burned them in the city center. These people lived a life believing in the supernatural and experiencing the supernatural. And and I say all of that just so you know that this was a place of demonic stronghold, of demonic authority and power, and yet what we see even in this little church in Ephesus is that there has been an inbreaking into the supernatural realm. Territory has been reclaimed on behalf of the one who rules above all other gods. Ephesians, the book of Ephesians is laced with references to the spiritual realm and spiritual warfare, and so too is Psalm 68. There are constant illusions and statements that describe in Psalm 68 God's power over and above the gods of the other nations. And you say, I I thought there was only one God. I thought there were no other gods. Yes and no. The scriptures actually make it very clear that there are, so to speak, lowercase g gods. There are spiritual authorities and powers, as Paul has made it clear, influencing how people are living and what they're pursuing and how they are resisting God. This wasn't just a reality 2,000 years ago or 4,000 years ago, this is the same reality we experience today. And in Psalm 68, there are countless declarations being made about the spiritual realm. Verse 7 through 10 of Psalm 68, listen to this. O God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth quaked, the heavens poured down rain. Before God, the one on Sinai, before God, the God of Israel, rain in abundance, O God, you shed abroad. You restored your inheritance as it languished. Your flock found a dwelling in it. In your goodness, O God, you provided for the needy. You say, well, what's the, I mean, okay, I don't see anything supernatural there being referenced at all. Well, I, I think, again, in our contemporary worldview, we miss what they understood back then. All of these references to rain and water in abundance are somewhat veiled to us, but were very clear to the people of Israel, statements about who was the true and living God. You see, throughout Israel's history, there was a, a battle 
for Israel's allegiance to the true God of Israel. We know this, right? Here they come out of, rescued out of uh, Egypt, and by the way, the gods of Egypt, all of the plagues and all of that, all, what, all the, those things were meant to display to Pharaoh that his gods were worthless and that God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, was the true and living God. But all throughout Israel's history, they had this battle for their, their allegiance to God. And one of the things you'll see as you read through the Old Testament is that there is a common lowercase g God that comes up over and over and over again. His name is Baal or Baal. And Baal is, is a God who begins to capture the hearts of God's people over and over again. He's the God of the nations. He's the pagan God. And one of the things you need to understand is that he is the supreme deity in the pagan world. In fact, his name means cloud rider. Pointing to his supremacy. He's the God who rides the clouds. He's the God who's the God over all of the other lowercase g gods. And in the ancient world, they believed that Baal was the one who controlled the weather and especially the rain. And so when they went through drought, who did they call out to? Baal. Do you remember the, the backdrop of Elijah in 1 Kings 18 with the wrestling match against the, the prophets of Baal? Do you remember what led into that? There was this massive drought, there's no water. And, and as Elijah demonstrates the inadequacy and the insufficiency of Baal, and he mocks him, you know, where is your God? You're calling out to him? You're cutting yourselves? I mean, where is he? Maybe he went on a long journey. Maybe he's in the porta potty out back. And then he soaks, listen, in a drought, in a drought when water is scarce, he soaks the offering, he drowns the offering in water, he, he carves a ditch out and he fills the ditch and then he calls upon the name of the Lord God Yahweh and out of the sky, fire comes down and consumes this soaking wet offering before their very eyes demonstrating the greater power of Yahweh over Baal. He is not a God like our God. And you want to know what happened right after that? Elijah goes and tells the king, go up on the mountain and go look at the clouds. And he looks and there's a cloud coming. And you know what he says? Get ready. The rain's about to come. Why? Baal doesn't control the rain. Baal is not the cloud rider. Yahweh God of heaven is the God who controls all things. And all other gods cower before him. Their power is nothing like the power of God. There are references in Psalm 68 to chariots and, and riding these chariots to God, the, this conqueror, this victorious king riding on the chariot, and there are allusions right to Ezekiel where he is the one, our, our king, is the one who rides his chariot on the clouds. We see in this psalm, Psalm 68, that not only do you hear the God of the clouds and the God of the rain, there are references throughout this psalm to a place, a mountain called Bashan. He says in verse 15, for example, O mountain of God, mountain of Bashan, O many-peaked mountain of Bashan, 
Why do you look with hatred, O many-peaked mountain, at the mountain that God desired for his abode? Yes, where the Lord will dwell forever. You see, there's a, there's a competition here. You're looking down on the God of Israel and his holy dwelling place. And it lays out this battle that's being waged for Bashan, right here, all the way down to verse 23. And right in the middle, it says that God will strike the heads of his enemies, the hairy crown of him who walks in his guilty ways. Many people believe that verse 21, that reference to a hairy crown is actually a veiled reference to a goat god, another name for Baal, or allusion to Baal. In verse 22, the Lord said, I will bring them back from Bashan. I will bring them back from the depths of the sea. All this illusion, like going and rescuing from Bashan. And you say, well, what is the significance? Is this just simply geographical significance? And the answer is no. Geography in the ancient worldview was always tied spiritually. The word Bashan is actually translated literally the place of the serpent, if that gives you some sense of what's being hinted at here. It was seen in the ancient world as a demonic stronghold. In fact, some have actually seen this place, Bashan, the mountain of Bashan, they've actually named it the gateway to the underworld. Ancient writings reference it this way. Or for some of you, maybe this will ring a bell, it has been called the gates of hell. You see, at the time of David writing this, if you wanted to evoke images of the demonic and death, you'd simply refer to Bashan. And maybe some of you recall Psalm 22, the messianic psalm that describes and depicts the crucifixion of Jesus long before it ever happened. And there is a powerful reference, listen, right in the middle of this psalm, Psalm 22, verse 12. Listen to what it says. This is Jesus hanging on the cross in agony, dying for the sins of the world, suffering the wrath of God. Listen to what it says. It describes the event from a spiritual standpoint. Here's what it says. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. See this imagery. What Jesus experienced on the cross as he hung there was multi-layered. He suffered physically. He suffered the spiritual wrath of God. And while he hung on the cross, listen, the bull of Bashan, the demonic forces and rulers and authorities of this unseen world, they surrounded him and mocked him and they roared at him. They thought, listen, they thought they were victorious in the cross. This was a spiritual battle with eternal significance for souls. You better believe Satan was ramping up the assault and the attack on Jesus. Matthew alludes to this psalm when referring to the death of Christ, and the imagery is so startling, reminding us of the cosmic battle that Jesus was waging for our souls. But in Psalm 68, especially verses 15 through 23, David is describing the time when God takes ownership of Bashan. And 
in verse 20, just listen to this, just in light of that context, the Lord said, I will bring them back from Bashan, I will bring them back from the depths of the sea, that you may strike your feet in their blood, that the tongues of your dogs may have their portion from the foe. I mean, can you just see the powerful imagery of Jesus Christ, the one Paul is saying is at the heart of this very passage? marching right into the territory of the greatest enemy, going to battle against the greatest enemy of this universe, and stealing back from him what is rightfully his. And the larger backdrop of all of this, church, we've, we saw this just before Christmas when we, we did that little mini-series where we looked a broad sweeping look at the story of the Word of God and the Bible and what's taking place beginning at Genesis 3.15 when Satan had led astray Adam and Eve and God promised that one day someone was going to be born of this woman who would crush the head of the serpent, though the serpent would bruise his heel. And we watched as that story has unfolded. This is the heart of the, the storyline of the scriptures as that's unfolded. And we get all the way into Genesis chapter 11. And one of the crazy things we see is that mankind, again, tries to unite against God. And as a result, at the Tower of Babel, God scatters the people, confusing their languages, and creates from them a multitude of nations. In fact, right before the event is unfolded, we see that God had scattered a specific number of nations, and it's not intended to be an exhaustive list, but we call it the table of nations, where there are 70 nations, or 72, there's some discrepancies in how that number should be translated, but regardless, we see this dispersion of the nations, but right in the heart of that, as Satan is working to destroy mankind, as certain as Satan is working to divide mankind, we see that right in the heart of that, God has a plan to reunite mankind. And in fact, Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9 will be on the screen behind me. Listen to what it says. It says, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, this is talking a reference back to Babel, when God gave them the nations, fine, you take, you take those places, you go away from me, you don't want me, fine, have it your way. When he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the numbers of the sons of God. You say, what is that? The sons of, some of your Bibles may say sons of Israel. We know now that the right translation is the sons of God. And this too, I believe, is a reference to the spiritual realm. Sons of God should be lowercase g, or sons of, or excuse me, it should be referencing lowercase g gods. But the idea being that God dispersed the nations and he gave them borders and territories and land, geographically speaking, but over those geographical boundaries, there were spiritual authorities appointed. Given a, a temporary rule because they had usurped it. But in the midst of that, but the Lord, listen to this, but the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted inheritance. You see, you see the contrast there? God gave the nations to the pagan gods of this world, to the demonic forces and authorities, but God reserved for himself, his people, his allotted heritage. God selects Israel to be his nation and he their God and all the other nations are given over to the, the quote-unquote gods of this world, these demonic powers. And I want you, some of you are you're trying to process this still and I totally get it. 
Let me just kind of add some fuel to that fire. I want you to think for a moment of a passage here. Maybe you've kind of looked at it like, that is weird. Have you ever read through the book of Daniel? In Daniel chapter 10, specifically verse 11 and 13, Daniel has prayed and asked God for something. But notice what it says. And he said to me, oh, Daniel, this is a messenger speaking to Daniel, an angel. Oh, Daniel, man greatly loved Understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. And then he said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand, humbled yourself before your God. Listen to this. Your words have been heard. From the first day you prayed, Daniel, I heard you. God heard you. And I have come because of your words. I'm the answer to your prayer sent by God. Listen to this. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. Who's he talking about? He's talking about what Paul talks about in Ephesians 6.12. The principalities, the powers, the authorities, the rulers. The prince of Persia is a spiritual, demonic being who withstands the angel sent by the Lord to deliver a message. So much so, listen, that but Michael, one of the chief princes. Listen, the categories, the names they, they have. The, the angelic realm just blows my mind. We, we don't understand half of what the scriptures say about this. Michael, like the archangel, he's one of the chief princes. In God's army, he came to help me. For I was left there with the kings of Persia. Can you just, this is like straight out of a movie. Like science fiction, and yet it's real. The cosmic battle that we fail to see is staggering in its scope. God's purpose in selecting Israel is that they would be a vehicle through which the world would be reclaimed. The nations would be won back. A battle would be waged and God would acquire for himself people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Obviously, Israel failed miserably at their job, but they were never intended to be the true solution. Jesus, the Son of God, would come and do what Israel never could. But when you move through Israel's history, as Psalm 68 does, you see that it was never Israel who won the battles anyways. It was always God. God always had to be the one. Verse 28, summon your power, O God, the power, O God, by which you have worked for us. Victory always belonged to the Lord. And their history is a display of the victory of their God and the blessings they received as a result as God comes and he showers the gifts upon them. But when you fast forward to the Gospels, here's one of the things that you need to maybe see a connection you never have. You have this incredible account of Jesus sending out his disciples to the nations. It's like a precursor to the Great Commission in one sense. And you want to know what the number is that he sends out? Seventy. And you need to believe that there's a direct link back to Babel. The dispersion of the nations. You see, it's not the number that's ultimately important. It's what the number indicates. The number of nations that were given over to the gods of this world. Listen, with the coming of Jesus, it is a statement of the toppling of the kingdoms of this world. And he sends these disciples out in Luke chapter 10, verses 17 through 20, Listen, they come back to him, and listen to what they say. 
I think it's on the screen now. Okay, I'm looking at the wrong side here. Okay, you can go back. There we go. It says the 72 or 70, there's, as I said, there's some textual issues, but the, and that is, by the way, back in Babel as well. So the number can be translated either 70 or 72. Returned with joy, saying, listen to this, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And listen to what he says. He said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, by the way, that's not an allusion to the first time Satan was kicked out of heaven. This is a statement about the victory that was won at the cross. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, listen, if if you're inclined to stop there and say, this is awesome, look at the power that we have over the enemy. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. This is incredible, though. And Paul now, now back in Ephesians, okay, I told you this is going to be a little bit different sermon, right? Paul looks in verse 9 and 10, and he says this, in saying that he ascended, what does it mean, but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. And he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. You see, what, what, what is Paul laying out here? It's so simple now. I hope you see it. He, the one who ascended to a place of prominence. Can you see this? He, the one who ascended, who is exalted above all things, over all realms. What does it mean but that he also descended in the lower regions of the earth? You say, what does that mean? It means simply this. Listen, there there are three interpretations of what it means that he descended into the lower regions of the earth. Some people believe it's talking about Jesus descending into the lower regions, into hell to declare victory to the enemies. Some people see this as as, uh, the incarnation specifically and the humiliation of Jesus. He went to the lowest of lows to reclaim us. And some people see this as specific just talking about the earth. I'm not entirely sure, to be perfectly honest with you. I think all of those have their strong points, and they make a lot of sense in various ways, but I I think it's probably best to take this as he descended to the earth, the incarnation, in the sense that here is the place where Jesus won the victory. The reason he's there, ascended on high, is because he first came down to this world, and he reclaimed what was his the only way he could, by becoming a man and dying in the place of men. By suffering punishment for sin, though he was sinless himself. And in doing so, listen, in doing so, this this is the place. The cross was the place of total defeat, but not without the ascension, the resurrection, the ascension. He, he, He died for our sins, praise God, hallelujah. He shed his blood so that we could be forgiven. And But here's the better news. He marched out of the grave alive. He's continuing the victory march. He marched right back up and he sat right back down on his throne above all things so that he might fulfill all things. This is awesome. point is not so much the descent as much as it is the ascent. 
The imagery is so vivid. Don't you see? If you take the backdrop of Psalm 68, you have Jesus marching into enemy territory, defeating the greatest enemy, and then dragging him back in his victory procession. Right back to his throne. And the main focus for Paul is, again, not that he came down, but that he is back up and he is far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. We've seen this already, that the purpose that God is after is full, total reconciliation of the universe, the things in heaven and the things on earth. And right now, in and through the church, he is demonstrating his power to reconcile this sin-cursed world. All the other gods are below him. That's what he's saying. And Paul says it like this in Colossians chapter 2.15. He, through the cross, disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. I expected like an amen at least from that. <laughs> through the cross and the resurrection and exaltation, Christ stripped the demonic forces of their power and authority. He publicly exposed them and he led in triumphal procession and in so doing, he gave gifts to men and here's what you need to see. Listen, all of this is heading towards this simple point. Listen, we share in the declaration of the enemy's defeat by how we live faithfully together in the body of Christ. We make a statement. He has poured out his power and presence in the form of his Holy Spirit. Each one of you called by his grace and gifted by his grace. If you are a child of God, every time we use the diversity of gifts with the unity of purpose to glorify his name, we continue to declare to the watching spiritual realm right now that our enemy is defeated. This is holy gloating, okay? This is the only time in your life where gloating is actually okay and encouraged, biblically. So let's do it. Not with our words, but with our actions. Serving Christ and one another faithfully, constantly declaring by doing so. Listen, Satan, you are a defeated foe and you have no hold on me. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And you see, listen, having this eternal perspective fuels our temporal service here and now. It gives it greater purpose and meaning. Listen, what we're doing is not just earthly. It is cosmic in its implications. And it helps us to see, secondly, that we have a diversity of roles declaring our Savior's victory. I promise you this was supposed to go this way. It is going to be very quick. We have a diversity of roles declaring our Savior's victory. Now, I, I love, listen, I love that we get to rub salt in the wounds of Satan. That's a good thing. Every time we're unified in our diversity, we're rubbing salt in the wounds of Satan. You're a defeated foe. You're a defeated foe. You have no power over me. And I love that when we function in diversity of roles, that we are continuing to display not just our enemy's defeat, but our Savior's victory. And listen, I, I get it. You say, aren't those the same thing? Yes, but they're two sides of the same coin, and how we frame that matters. It's one thing to continue to point the finger at our enemy and say, ha ha, you've lost. And it's another to point at our Savior and say, you have won. And while both are true, our primary objective is to fix our gaze upon our conquering king and to live there. And so Paul now shifts from the gifts given to us all to certain roles given to some. 
But the few mentioned here in verse 11 need to be viewed in light of the whole mentioned in verse 12. You'll notice verse 11, he says he gave the, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. But listen, it's not just them. To equip the saints, that's the whole, for the work of ministry, for building up of the body. You could rightly say uh, that some of the gifts God has given to the church are the leaders of the church. Here he says he gave these as gifts to the church. I'd encourage you, however, not to walk around believing that you are God's gift to the church. (laughs) But, in a sense, it's true. But always be careful, right? What do we have that we have not received? There's a certain joy in this, listen, in knowing that God has called us to this and he's given us jobs, he's given us roles. Each one of us has been given as a gift and are truly given as a gift to the church. There are a diversity of roles that are necessary to function in a healthy, God-honoring, victory-displaying way. And it's helpful to see chapter 4 here as an expansion of chapter 2 in many ways. You see, in chapter 2, God is talking about how he has unified the church. And now in chapter 4, he's explaining how he's going to do that practically. And he expands on the metaphor given in chapter 2, verse 20, where he says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now, the grammar is a little bit complicated here in listing all of these different roles in the church. And it seems to be indicating in the the original language a, a progressive kind of movement in the church, a progressive way in which God has designed to strengthen the church at various stages in the life of the church. And there seems to be distinct roles given for even potentially distinct periods of time, as we saw in that foundational stage in 2.20, the apostles and prophets. They help accomplish a unique purpose in the life of the church. The apostles are the first group mentioned, those that were given the unique authority of the laying the foundation of the church. Apostle simply means sent one, but here it most certainly references the 12 apostles plus Paul, one untimely born, those that were given this unique authority to lay the foundation of the church in its embryonic stages. They were commissioned by Christ. They had seen the risen Lord They are responsible, we know, for conveying new revelation, the scriptures that we hold even in front of us. The prophets parallel the Old Testament prophets. John Stott says it like this, a prophet was a person who stood in the counsel of God, who heard and even saw his word, and who in consequence spoke from the mouth of the Lord and spoke his word faithfully. In other words, a prophet was a mouthpiece or a spokesman of God, a vehicle of his direct revelation. In light of incomplete scriptures, they too convey this new revelation as the church began to spread. 1 Corinthians 14 tells us they brought comfort, encouragement, and edification as they taught and helped people understand the Word of God. It was these two offices in particular that laid the foundation for the church, and once that was laid, we actually began, even in in the progressive nature of revelation in scripture, to see those offices begin to fade out. In one sense, we could say that these offices are no longer happening. There was a time, I thought about it like this, there was a time when the church was meeting, they didn't have a a time in their service to raise their hand for a Bible. Think about that. Hey, like we did this morning. 
There was a time when the early church got together and they had the Old Testament, but they're like, well, wow, all this new stuff that we're learning from the Apostle Paul, where can I get a copy of that? And they say, well, you can't, but you know what? God's given you apostles and prophets to help you understand these things right now. And building on the foundation were evangelists, as Paul mentions here. It's possible here that their function resembles that of modern-day missionaries, but this is important to understand. It's, it's not speaking here simply of sharing the gospel. You know, as we think of evangelism and sharing the gospel, the context actually helps us see that this was a role that was played in the early church to equip the saints. In the early church, they actually believed that the evangelists were the successors of the apostles. It was an office. It was a role. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 to do the work of an evangelist, and there the idea was to take what had been already started by Paul, the apostle, this newly formed church, and to continue to build upon it and strengthen it in this unique phase of the life of the church. Carry on the work of the apostles. And finally, we see the shepherds and pastors, or excuse me, the shepherds and teachers. Shepherds can be translated as pastors. Grammatically, these two are connected in a really unique way. And some people have assumed that these are speaking of really the same role, a pastor-teacher, but it's better to see these as two different roles with overlapping functions. The reason they are linked so tightly is likely indicating that Paul saw a progressive phasing out of the apostles and prophets and even the evangelist, big E evangelist, and that these two roles would now become the normative leadership role in the life of the church. Pastors, simply those who shepherd and give oversight, who help to feed the flock and lead the flock and care for the flock that Christ had purchased with his own blood. Pastors care for the church in practical ways, giving direction. And the teachers, in one sense, can be separated, that they would be seen as those particularly gifted in explaining and expounding theology and the truth that was delivered by the apostles and prophets. Their goal was to better help them understand the revealed truth so that the shepherds and teachers could then come alongside people and help them apply it on a regular basis in their lives. They work in tandem together in many ways, and they even overlap in some individuals. There are some, I would argue that they're all pastors are teachers. They must be able to teach according to 1 Timothy 3, but not all teachers are pastors. And the purpose is there in verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. You see, a church leader's primary responsibility and role is to prepare, to train up, to equip God's people for ministry to help you know how God has painted and gifted you and to help show you how you should be used or could be used in the life of the church to bring greater glory to God. The pastor works and the people work. The church, it has been said, is to have an every member ministry. So let me ask you this morning, what are you doing with what God has given you? The church will be enriched for sure in worship and mission when everyone is serving. This is clearly what Paul is heading towards in our next section that we'll see next week. But before we get there, let me connect it back to the cosmic significance of what is happening in and through the church. Are you aware of what is being declared to the spiritual realm every time you serve faithfully in the body of Christ? This isn't just, listen, your, your service in the church isn't simply filling a role or filling a hole or plugging a gap somewhere. 
It's not a a menial task as much as you may be inclined to think about what you're doing is menial or trivial. It's not insignificant. On the contrary, it is more significance than perhaps you've ever realized. Psalm 68, this victory march is continuing. You see, we have actually been included into the victory march. The king is still giving gifts to men. The salt is still being rubbed in the wounds of Satan's even this very morning in this very place. The host of captives is watching. The victory of the king is on full display. Listen, when you greet people at the doors with gospel joy, you are making a statement to the spiritual realm, Jesus has won. When you pick up a trailer early and drive here and help set up curtains and sound equipment, you are making a statement to the spiritual realm, Jesus has won. When you pass an offering plate across or you pour a communion cup or you sit with children and you teach them or simply hold them or change their diaper, you are making a statement to the spiritual realm that Jesus Christ has won the victory. When you make a meal for new parents, when you visit the sick, when you give generously to those in need, you are declaring to the universe that Jesus Christ has won. And you are declaring it to the angels who rejoice and the demons who shudder. It is a constant declaration to Satan and his realm that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. God has made a healthy church that is unified in their diversity, a megaphone to the demonic realm. All rule, all authority, all dominion belongs to King Jesus. Father, we pray that you would stir our hearts to live in light of this truth. that what is taking place in, in the church of Jesus Christ is not small or insignificant. God, it matters for the watching world that they might see the love of Christ in this place, but it matters in the spiritual realm. There is a cosmic statement and declaration we are making. And God, I pray that you would give us hearts that long to make that statement over and over again by faithfully ministering and serving in whatever way you have gifted us, in whatever way you have called us in the body of Christ. Lord, make it our longing to declare to all who see, both physical and spiritual, that Jesus Christ has won and the enemy has been defeated. You are the God who goes before us. You are the God who goes behind us. You are the God who goes with us. All the victories we experience in this life are because of you and you alone. Father, we long for the day where you will return and we will stand with you and we will declare with all those in heaven on earth to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen.